0: giant robots smashing into other giant robots this is the giant robots smashing into other giant robots podcast where we explore the design development and business of great products i'm your host chad pytel and with me today is jamie howard director of engineering at transloc who provides demand response technology for city-owned microtransit solutions jamie thanks for joining me
1: delighted to be here chad thank you
0: so, demand response technology for city owned microtransit solutions is a little bit of a mouthful. So, you want to break that down <laughs> and explain exactly what it is TransLoc does?
1: Sure. So TransLow Commission is to make transit the first choice for all. And we believe by doing that, that means making mobility seamless, getting from any point A to any point B and not worrying about the modes along the way. We got our start in fixed route transportation, working with campuses to track vehicles. We got our start right here in Raleigh at North Carolina State University. And yeah, this, this demand response market is, is agency owned. We want to make it possible for transit agencies to be highly responsive to the demand. And you can think of it as a ride hailing service that is run by your local municipal transit agency.
0: Are there lots of cities or towns that are doing this?
1: Yeah, so transit is, is one of those markets that is really in a lot of change right now. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of different ways to come at this, people disrupting from inside, from outside, and there's a lot of different approaches because every community has different needs, and so they need flexible ways to address whatever their transit needs for their community are. We're piloting in a bunch of different areas, um, and we've been working with this product on campuses for their safe ride solution for a while now.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So it's not just municipalities, but any sort of contained environment that is sort of like that, a campus or a town or that kind of thing?
1: Sure, yeah. Municipalities, parts of municipalities, mm-hmm. dealing with hospitals, corporate campuses, and again, like I said, universities.
0: And do you see the primary use case is people doing something new or transitioning an existing sort of, like you said, on campuses with safe rides or I live in a town called Newton and they have a service called The Ride, Here, actually, I think it's all MBTA provides the ride, and it's for disabled people and veterans and that kind of thing, and they can call a special van or car service that will take them where they need to go outside of the normal transit system.
1: Yeah. So every agency has some requirement for providing uh, paratransit services, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, flexible for people with different abilities and needs. And we're not there with the product right now just because of the regulations around that. But we do find that when we're talking about flexible transit, it, it is something that this service gets used for a lot. So whether it's an area that doesn't have a lot of density, and so they can't put a lot of fixed route stops there, but you want to get people out of that community to the nearest rail stop or bus stop, whether it's weekends or after hours service when, again, you don't want to run a fixed route service, but you still want to provide some mobility solution. And then there's just plain, you know, point to point ride hailing. So Mm -hmm. there's a, it's a wide variety of use cases. Yeah.
0: So you started at Trendslook as an engineering manager in August of 2015. Mm -hmm. How have things changed since then?
1: Most obviously, sort of cosmetically, it's by size. When I joined the product group, it was about 12 people. We're closing in on 40 right now. Engineering went from about seven or eight to in the mid-20s now, high 20s, excuse me. So that's been the biggest change right there is going from a pool of developers that had two product managers and just kind of picked up projects willy-nilly to a full-on Scrum Agile program with five cross-functional teams. Mm -hmm. In terms of what we do the company is uh, recently acquired, recently uh, funded, but it was it had existed for a long time working on just the fixed route mode of transit. So we've got went from one product to seven, and again all these teams. It's it's been a, a very different world now than looking back three years ago.
0: So when you joined as engineering manager, were you still at the top of the engineering organization, or was there multiple engineering managers?
1: Uh, No, the engineering organization was small enough that it was given to me with the intent of, we know we're going to grow. How Mm -hmm. do we scale this? And my reporting structure hasn't changed. I've been working for the then director, now VP of product.
0: Okay. So even though your title changed in about a year, it was more organically going that growth in the change in your position.
1: Yeah, the the change was both a a title change, but also a change in eyeline and expectation of of worry about more of the product in the company than just the engineering at that point. We'd hit a point of maturity where that was possible.
0: When we're working on engineering software, we want to be careful not to prematurely optimize because, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, this needs to serve millions of people and to then actually have millions of people using the system. You know, if you approach it from day one, like you're building it for millions of people and then it never gets there. That's a situation you don't want to be in. So when you join Transloc, you know, with the idea that you're going to be scaling the organization and figuring it out, how definite was that scaling
1: it was uh, definitely what I had been brought on to have the background in doing, but it was definitely something that, you know, as funds allow, we we're paying our own way up until that first round of funding. And so it was very much a, okay, what is the, what is the most important need? It was a lot of, uh, especially the first year and a half was a lot of just in time hiring and things like that, taking advantage of a few opportunity hires as well, but it was always against a game plan. I knew what I wanted the department to look like, mm-hmm. and I worked to get that understood throughout the teams and and get a shared sense of what we were building towards. And then it was just a matter of when we could afford to.
0: How did you approach hiring to scale that quickly?
1: So this is probably the subject that's most near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. I love the culture side of building organizations, building teams. And so I focused very heavily on making sure I wasn't just looking for the sort of rock star or ninja, but looking for people that understood product and wanted to address the business needs very much looking for engineers who cared about shipping code to solve real problems for real people and then being able to see the impact of that work in their communities and in the feedback of our customers Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. what is the technology stack that transloc uses
1: predominantly Python, JavaScript, React on the front end, and uh, Go for some of the heavy lifting on the back end. Mm -hmm.
0: And when you think about hiring and the technology stack, how did you approach that?
1: Was training a fundamental part? So the technology stack had already been in place, and you know Python being so heavily used in academia makes it pretty easy to find people who are at least familiar. Yeah. The choices that we made were largely around the team that had been in place, what mm-hmm. they'd picked, and then reinforcing that and doubling down right. where we could.
0: But did you approach hiring as in, oh, we need to find people who know Python, or were you willing to uh, train people?
1: No, perfectly happy to train You know, the old days of the LAMP stack of, Perl Python, PHP, etc. Those are fairly transferable skills I've found. Mm -hmm. And what we care about, again, is I look a lot more for engineers than programmers. The programming can be taught. We have a a mantra that I picked up along the way, which is attitude, then aptitude, then ability. If you have the first two, you can gain the third. So we prioritize them that order. Mm
0: -hmm. What do you think is the difference between an engineer and a programmer?
1: I think for me, it's, you know, job titles can be whatever. But Mm -hmm. for me, the differentiation in my head is somebody who is just caring about the most efficient algorithm or the simplest code, the most elegant code, without thinking about the purpose behind the problem that you're trying to solve. So really, I'm focused on engineers who they see solutions and and, and impact as the reason they do their job. And programming is a tool to that end. Quite often, technology is not the solution or, you know, it's not the, the complete solution. And so looking at things holistically is very important.
0: Yeah. I find, and this is a simplistic view, but I think it resonates with developers a bit, which is to say that code is a liability. Like the more code (laughs) that we write, the more stuff we have built up, that's, you know, a liability. And oftentimes the solution is to not write code. Agreed. We have a very useful tool and that's writing code. (laughs) And so (laughs) this isn't just true for developers. I think Early on, it can be difficult for founders and companies to also understand that they shouldn't necessarily always be writing code to solve problems, especially when you haven't validated whether those problems are the right problems to solve yet.
1: Yeah, and that's been a, a fun part of this is is the validation piece. Mm-hmm. The software in this market hasn't always been the sort of highly iterative, agilely developed kind of software. And so we've got customers that aren't always used to this collaborative method of problem solving. So it's been a learning experience for us to deal with customers that have that background. And it's been a learning experience for customers to understand how we're we're developing iteratively mm-hmm. um, as opposed to disappearing for a year and then coming back with a solution that may or may right. not fit.
0: Well, I would guess that with the primary target market of municipalities and and that sort of kind of organization, they're also used to a certain like we've set aside this budget and it's this and then we're going to buy it and then we have it. And that isn't necessarily conducive to iterative development either.
1: Yeah, it's definitely made our customer experience group even more important than they already were. And we had built the company on that reputation, but it has definitely been a a leveling up for everybody to learn even more so how to manage that conversation and, and really deliver that delight to the users.
0: So what's sort of top of mind or the biggest challenge for you right now in your position leading, I think you said, 30 engineers?
1: Yeah, Coming up on 30 engineers. So yeah, I had been running the organization when we got to a size at which I couldn't individually manage every Mm -hmm. engineer and give them the support I wanted to be able to. We instituted chapter lead model, uh, stolen whole hog from Spotify and the player coach per discipline. And that worked for us for a while. We've made a change recently to switch to dedicated hands-off engineering managers. Mm -hmm. I've hired the first of those. I've got one more open position to fill for that. And so a lot of this for me is understanding how to divvy up the work of that engineering management and hand off something that I've been so deeply attached to for so long.
0: Yeah. So you're hiring externally to fill those dedicated engineering manager positions?
1: Yeah, we went through an internal round first uh, mm-hmm. before we opened externally, but that's the case. Yeah. Did you
0: fill any of them internally?
1: No, we did not. Mm-hmm.
0: This is one of the things that I've heard a lot of people struggle with, both at a personal level, but as a, at a company level as well. Like personally, You know, engineers don't necessarily want to move into management or are worried about losing their ability to code. And I've also heard from people at companies that work at places with dedicated engineering managers, some of whom are non-technical in nature, Uh that that also has very positive stories because those people are really good at what they do if they're allowed to be and they're actually equipped to do the job.
1: Yeah, that's very much our strategy is this idea of having multiple paths to advancement. So very recently we put into place a competency model that describes five levels from associate to contributing to senior to staff to principal engineer to allow for an advancement path for engineers that want to continue to grow, gain responsibility, have a bigger decision space without, as you say, giving up that technical Mm -hmm. side on the the management side we definitely focus on people that care more about building teams than building product at this point mm-hmm. uh, and have moved to that point in their career where they're They're definitely thinking in terms of servant leadership, being a force multiplier. And it's difficult. We did interview internally. In some cases, I had reports that I hadn't properly prepared. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I'm having to learn as well. There's still plenty for me to learn about this job. I led leaders in the Army, but doing it in the civilian world is still something I'm getting the hang of. And the mistakes you make along the way are about people at this point. So it really Mm -hmm. does stick with you. It really hurts, but the lessons stick too.
0: Yeah, it strikes me as you lay out this idea of that you know we have a technical track, a non-technical tracker. It doesn't seem that unique. Like I, I've talked to lots of companies who end up in that model, mm-hmm. but yet it seems so difficult to get there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's not unique. It's something that I've. I've seen in places, the U.S. Army used to do it once upon a time, got rid of it, and I'm always surprised when it's not present, but it is. Mm-hmm. It is insanely difficult to manage. Objectively qualifying people's skill sets is really hard to do, yeah. and the the sort of internal status that can be granted or taken away, and the ability to abuse the model, the model When you have, let's say, a a less than high-performing team that doesn't trust each other, you can have that model really set you up for failure instead of the other way around. Mm -hmm. So it was a long time to get it in place here. Some of that's just the administrative work involved, but a lot of it was getting our culture into a place where it would benefit us instead of hurting us.
0: Yeah, and I think that that, to me, seems the key is you almost… It's sort of like the premature optimization thing that we started the Mm -hmm. conversation with. Like if you go into a small team and try to institute that kind of structure, it's not right for that team at that (laughs) point in the company's life, that kind of thing. You almost need to evolve to it over time to have it really stick.
1: Yeah, and and you have to have an organization big enough to justify multiple levels within a single discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if you've got a senior engineer with no one to teach or an associate engineer with no one to learn from, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And right. it, that adaptability was was a big part of it. When I walked in, you asked about having a plan. I looked at the team that didn't have any dedicated QA and said, well, that's obviously what I need to hire first. Mm-hmm. But after watching the team for a few months, I noticed that most of our, our issues, uh, whether it was an outage or not, was coming from the system level code and the and the, the different problems with the, the stack or the architecture, not the software itself. Mm-hmm. And so the first hires were actually build an operations group that was focused on both the deployment, but also the tools for that deployment. And then we came back around to QA later. Uh, so it is that just-in-time hiring, and this is just I know, just in time process. It's a similar idea.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. What is your interface to the rest of the organization? You know, being a director in a growing organization, what things do you have to deal with and what things do you have to manage?
1: So I've been lucky enough to have a boss who includes me in any conversation that that it makes sense and a few where it maybe doesn't just so I can have <laughs> enough context. As he and I, I I joke about, I like to be leaning the right direction. As I'm sure you know, it's it's useful to have the people that are going to build the organization already have a, a good insight into the CEO's mind and be able to go farther than just the explicit instructions. And so a lot of it is is interfacing directly with other directors to find out how they are building their organizations, mm-hmm. ensure that we minimize siloing to know how do we handle communication from, for example, customer experience into the product team and, you know, with marketing, making sure that our story is getting told. Uh, so a lot of that is, it's my job to interface with the other departments on behalf of engineering.
0: So you mentioned the army a couple times and you led <laughs> some teams within the army, right? I did. How has that experienced, you said you still have a lot to learn in the civilian thing. How <laughs> are things different? What are you, what are you learning?
1: So in the military, while I I was a leader who preferred to use the carrot to the stick, you still had a stick. Mm -hmm. And retention's not much of an issue uh, in in a lot of ways, or it's it's not usually your problem. Mm -hmm. And so managing almost exclusively by carrot and investing in people in a different way. In the military, you spend – in the infantry at least – you spend so much time with these people that you get very good at being both a leader and a friend, or Mm -hmm. you don't succeed as a leader. But you're not around people – in a workplace environment 24/7 as much time as you may spend we all have our home lives and we like to get home to our families and and our hobbies and things like that so you have to create those moments to bond and get to know each other, but you also have to, to understand people's incentives at a much deeper level and make sure that you're taking care of those desires and needs in order to build a team that cares about each other. But that's the part that's the same. The end goal is a high-functioning team that is there for each other, first and foremost, that they are accountable to each other and responsible for one another.
0: How is, at your level, as a leader interfacing with other leaders and other teams, is that
1: similar as well? Sure. Well, let me ask you this. I don't know what exposure you've had to working with veterans, but is your perspective more informed by Hollywood or practical experience? Because <laughs> that's, that's one of those things that I have to face off with.
0: Let's assume, so we have several <laughs> veterans who work at ThoughtBot, but let's assume that the audience's perspective is probably
1: more informed by Hollywood. Sure, so I would say of the of the war movies i 've seen, I can count on maybe two fingers, the number I think get it even close to right mm-hmm. so, how does
0: it actually work
1: yeah so the the idea of the jump how high and and the full metal jacket kind of stuff isn 't realistic. One of the things that 's the easiest way to explain it intuitively. Is if you've got a rifle squad in the infantry of nine soldiers, if one person is trying to fire all nine rifles, that doesn't go very well. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, you spend a lot of time uh, training and making sure that each of these people are fully competent to man their weapon. But also... That every scenario that comes up, you've rehearsed it over and over so that when you are in the real situation, the team knows what you're going to order before you order it and the team knows they can rely on each other. And so for me, that's been the markers for me to, to look at a high performing team. And it's also been the marker for me to work with other people is to understand what do they value in their teams, whether it's the team of my peers and colleagues or the teams that they, that they run in their organizations. What do they identify and how do I, uh, one, create the teams around me that I like to work on, but also understand their values as well and, and incorporate that into how I work. Mm-hmm.
0: I have thought before about this idea of rehearsal and mm-hmm. how in business we can practice through doing, but we don't necessarily ever rehearse. And I haven't just thought about it in the military aspect because I've also done a lot of theater and stuff myself. And it's the same thing there. We rehearse before performing, but in a lot of our work in industry and in our work, we don't rehearse. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, it is something I think about as somebody who believes in, in Agile and thinks Scrum is a great tool to get there. I find that quite often when you're dealing with a small team that's just on the cusp of adopting that new process, it can sometimes be a little performative. Mm-hmm. And so teams kind of are like, we don't need this ceremony. or We don't need this level of formality. And to my mind, I, I always think of that as sort of a rehearsal. If you enforce that full formality until the habits are strong, you are, in a sense, rehearsing for when the when the process becomes more needed. Yeah. And so I, I have thought about that. We do the same with incidents. So even a very simple incident, we still do a formal sign-off. We close the incident. We do an RCA just so that those habits are ingrained enough that when the real incidents come, the scary ones, we go to the, the safe process automatically.
0: It's less popular now, but there was... Uh, Rails Rumble, which was a 48-hour sort of programming competition where you design and build a product in 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't real, right? But it was a way to sort of like under pressure in a very short period of time have to basically rehearse. It was a good opportunity for us, especially since we're a consulting company, which is outside of the bounds of normal client work. There's no client watching. Mm-hmm. We get to rehearse this thing that we do every day. So that was one thing that I thought about in my past in terms of sort of a rehearsal environment.
1: Did you guys get the outcomes you expected out of that?
0: Yes. And it was also validating as well in small ways. Like at ThoughtBot, we do test-driven development. And Mm -hmm. it was really validating to see that we could still design, build, and launch a full product in 48 hours and not compromise on test-driven development.
1: That's awesome, the validation you get out of that, like you say, it Mm -hmm. it instills tons of confidence.
0: Yeah, yeah, it does. So are there any other things that stand out in your mind as lessons from your prior career in the military to what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think one of the ones that has been really in my mind for about the past six months now is this conflation of simple and easy and complex and hard. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that it's an easy mistake to make, I make it every day but it 's one of those things when you're when you're paying attention, and again, I keep coming back to agile it's it 's a big part of how I run organizations and, and my beliefs The values are are core to how I work but there 's nothing in there that 's terribly complicated right you know various methodologies can get as complex as they want to serve the needs of various businesses that want some part of agile. but at the end of the day, what makes it work is the discipline to do all the little things more right than wrong every day you 're going to make mistakes, but getting it right more often than you get it wrong. And the answers, when you say them out loud, seem extremely simple and kind of, you know, of course, but the hard part isn't the answer. The hard part is doing it. And that's definitely been on my mind as we scale to how do we teach, you know, as we triple in size, essentially, as one of the hiring plans I'm looking at, how do we teach that when we're outnumbered two to one? Mm -hmm. So
0: You alluded to the scenario before where people feel like they don't need that. The idea that every individual thing in Agile is pretty intuitive And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, that's what I would do anyway, or it's just common sense, right? And I think that causes people to dismiss it and take it for granted and then not actually do it.
1: Yeah, and that's where, for me, the the team accountability comes in. The way we learned Agile at Transloc was different than how I had had learned it in the past, which was sort of a start at the beginning of the the PDLC and, and run it through from discovery on in. What we did this time was we actually just started with standups. They had a standup in place, but it was not that effective. People were just talking to their ticket and no one was really paying attention to the other tickets on the board. So we changed that and we did that for about two weeks and then practiced it a little bit more. And then we formalized a sprint that was nothing but a document creation sprint. Style guidelines, write up some specs for some linters, talk about what doneness criteria and acceptance criteria were and create those in a one week sprint. And doing that taught them planning and a retro and a review. And we kept doing that sort of working from the, that smallest element of the standup out until the point where we got to discovery. And what I found that that did is it, it gave the engineers a hunger for the Mm -hmm. next ceremony because they knew in planning what the output of that planning was going to go into i.e., their daily standup. They knew in the grooming that they did for the first time, what that output should look like going into planning. And yeah, it was very much that same idea of like, how do we teach this? So it's so intuitive that there's no desire to end run the process.
0: Yeah. You also avoided what I think is a big mistake when companies or teams try to implement Agile, which is, it's like, this is what Agile is, and we are going to start doing it. And it's like everything on day one, or a trainer, someone external comes in, and they don't have any context on what the team is actually doing now or how it's actually functioning. And it just doesn't work (laughs) so doing it more iteratively with a lot of context of where the team's at now and meeting the team there and then Mm -hmm. bringing them along is a much better strategy so you also avoided that pitfall
1: yeah i don't know if you've ever seen in the movies or tv when you see cops or or military guys going through a building to clear it out um, and how sort of slow they move and almost ballet like motions but it's this idea of slow is smooth and smooth is fast. If you go too fast in those cramped hallways or in furniture filled rooms, you don't know you will trip, you'll fall and it'll get worse instead of better. Mm-hmm. And so it was the same idea here of, of we'll go nice and slow. We'll wait till people are ready for the next thing rather than forcing it down anyone's throat. And yeah, it took hold in a big way. And the teams run that process much more effectively than I ever could at this size.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I've felt over the years in that process as well is that If you believe in that, then it means that not every team is going to be exactly the same at exactly Mm -hmm. the same points. (laughs) And (laughs) so you try to bring everybody along, but there will be, this team has a particular challenge or whatever. And sometimes those are driven by the problem that they're solving as well. It has nothing to do with the people or whatever. It's just the problem that they're solving is different. And Agile gives us a different set of tools for solving their problem. And another team might not need those tools right now. And being comfortable with the fact that maybe everything isn't the same everywhere is one of the things that helped me free up. Did you find as you were rolling it out that things shouldn't be the same everywhere at Transloc or are you not at that size yet?
1: No, that was sort of baked in at the earliest stage. I taught the values as often as I could. When I was asking for or enforcing a behavioral change, I tied it to a value. I'm a big fan of people understanding why. Again, another misconception about the military. It's down to the lowest private in the infantry. Everyone knows why the mission you're going on is what it is and what the goal is because who knows who the last man standing may be. Mm -hmm. And so it's the same idea of making sure that people know why they're doing what they're doing. And that allowed for the teams to own their own processes pretty quickly. Another thing we did that really helped was as soon as we could, possibly manage it we dedicated scrum masters to teams so those scrum masters able to not carry processes and cross contaminate teams unnecessarily
0: so what's next on the horizon for transloc
1: yeah, so the nice thing about this acquisition is it's given us the ability to do a lot of things that we were sort of rotating between and, you know, sort of time slicing from product to product. Now we can address all of our top initiatives at the same time, which is great. We've taken our core engineering staff from the two teams they were on and spread them across five teams now. So we're obviously staffing those teams out and uh, getting them fully formed, all of them cross-functional QA, UX, Scrum Masters, product managers, software engineers of various inclinations and stripes. And so getting that stood up is definitely job one right now for the majority of the year. But also because of the fact that in the past, these products have been built in this rotating fashion, getting these engineers and teams back close to the customer so we can make sure that this is a collaborative enterprise and not just us building what we think we should build.
0: Awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck in that. If people want to find out more about TransLoke or follow along with you or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Sure. Uh, TransLoke.com and slash careers has all our openings posted. And I'm Jamie.Howard at TransLoke.com.
0: Jamie, I wish you the best of luck. Thanks for stopping by our Raleigh studio and and chatting with me today.
1: My pleasure, Chad. Thanks for having me.
0: You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at CPITel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom obarski Thanks for listening. See you next time.
1: This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, Let's build something great together.